Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus has just been through his last trial. He was tried by Annas and Caiaphas at night on Friday morning by the Jews, and then he was handed over to Pontius Pilate, who sent him to Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas sent him back to Pontius Pilate. Pilate is realizing that Jesus is innocent. He's already released Barabbas after trying to get the crowd to take Jesus and set him free instead of Barabbas. And he's getting closer and closer to the stage where he's going to turn him over to be crucified. So let's start with verse 26 in Matthew 27. Then he, that's Pilate, released Barabbas to them, released Barabbas to the crowd. But after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. That means he handed him over to the Roman soldiers in order to be crucified. Now, there's a lot of what happened here that's not mentioned in Matthew. John adds a lot of details. We're going to hop over to the situation, to the parallel passage in John to find out exactly what happened. But first of all, before we do that, let's look at how Jesus was flogged. What, let's just talk about Roman floggings. They were so brutal that often the victim died before he could be crucified, according to the NIV, my NIV study Bible. The Romans did not recognize the Jewish limitation of 40 strokes, as my NIV study Bible says. The Jews had a practice of only giving thir- giving 39 lashes in case of a miscount because 40 was their legal limit so that people would not die. So the Jews would give 39, but the Romans didn't care about that. They just beat the crap out of, every, out of whoever they were beating. Now, why did Pilate have Jesus beaten? He, remember, he was pretty sure he was innocent perhaps to rouse the crowd to pity so they still wouldn't still want Jesus crucified. That's John Gill's idea. And by the way, when we go over to John, we're going to have this flogging mentioned. And some people say there were two floggings. I'm going to assume not. I'm going to assume just to keep it simple. I always like to keep it simple as I can. We're going to assume one flogging. He was flogged with whips. And sometimes these whips had hip bones of beast added to the leather for cruelty. This flogging fulfills scripture, Isaiah 1, 6. From the sole of the foot even to the head, no spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Now the context of that in Isaiah's Israel, in its fallen state, John Gill and other people too presumed that this prophecy was actually not really ultimately talking about Israel, was talking about Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 20 verse 19 said this to his disciples, then they will hand him, the son of man, over to the, over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And of course the Gentiles are the Romans, and they is the Jews. The Jews handed Jesus over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be resurrected on the third day. So Jesus had predicted this, this mocking and this flogging too. We'll see the mocking in a minute, the flogging we, we see right here. Now, of course, this handed, handed, handing over was to the Romans, not to the Jews. The Jews had no authority to crucify Jesus. Now, let's go over to John and see the full account here. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, we know that the flogging took place, or we think the flogging took place in the Praetorium. Remember, let's talk about that a little bit. The Praetorium is the house that, of, of former palace of Herod, that... Pilate was staying in. Pilate's normal place was Caesarea, but he was in town in Jerusalem for all of the commotion here, and he was staying at the palace of Herod Antipas. In this palace, there was a room called the Praetorium, a large, large room, palace hall, and outs, but the Jews couldn't go in there because they would be defiled, so Pilate would talk to the Jews outside of the Praetorium in the courtyard outside on which there was a a pavement, it's called in English, the Gabbatha in Aramaic, 
a, a judge's bench where he would sit and, and talk with the Jews. So getting that straight, what happened here is that Jesus, Pilate had Jesus flogged in the praetorium, and then the Roman soldiers there in the praetorium then proceeded to put the red coat on him, give him the crown of thorns and the reed, and spit on his face and so forth. And then Pilate took Jesus outside of the praetorium, out, sat on the judgment seat, the Gabbatha, in the courtyard of his house there, and then he dealt with the Jews. So now, first of all, I'm going to talk about what he said with the Jews after this flogging. We're going to skip what Matthew is going to talk about, the, what the Roman soldiers did to him. We're going to hop over to John, and we're going to look at Jesus after the Roman soldiers have already messed him up, and then we're going to see what Pilate said to the Jews. So here we are in John 19, verses 1 through 16. And before I do this, let me point out that some people say that Pilate's judgment of Jesus was not in the praetorium, well, it was in the Praetorium, but they say that the Praetorium was not Herod Antipas's former residence, but rather it was in the Tower of, An of Antony, which was on the northeast corner of the temple. Herod's palace is on the south and west. Excuse me. The Tower of Antony was on the northwest of the temple, and Herod's palace was on the southwest of the temple. That's a matter for archaeologists. I'm going to assume it was in Herod's palace because I think that's the majority opinion. All right, now we go to John 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. We've just seen that in Matthew, assuming it's the same flogging. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a proper robe. This is still inside the praetorium. I'm not going to mention this too much. We'll talk about it when we go back to Matthew. We'll go into a little bit more detail here, but just to read John. The soldiers twisted the crown of thorns, put it on his head, arrayed him in a purple robe. They're mocking him as a king. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, I, I Out of the praetorium, out to the judgment seat, out to the Gabbatha, and he said to the Jews, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. The out shows us that he's now outside of the praetorium. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man, that's the famous Eke Homo, as you hear in the Stations of the Cross of the Roman Catholic Church, Behold the man. And by the way, why did he say that? He might have been trying to arouse pity, saying, How can you guys think this guy is your king? How can you guys, how can you Jews think that he's the Messiah? He's a pitiful wreck of a man. He might have been trying to get pity, because Jesus, Pilate, as we have said before in the previous audio, and we'll say again here, Pilate knew he was innocent, and he did not want to crucify him. But he was scared that the Jews would start a riot if he did crucify if he didn't crucify him, and he was scared if he did crucify him, he'd be condemning an innocent man, and the gods might get him for that. So Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. No pity there, obviously. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. One of many times that Pilate said that. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. That's the blasphemy, blasphemy laws, which, of course, were subject to capital punishment, which the Jews couldn't execute. So they're asking the Romans to do it for them. And, of course, you think, well, now, wait a minute. The Romans aren't interested in Jewish blasphemy laws, but they're just saying, look, kill him. We want you to kill him. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Why? Well, he had a wife to tell him that she'd had a dream, and the educated classes in Rome thought that dreams were voices of the gods, and the voices of the gods had apparently told his wife, hey, 
Don't kill this innocent man, she called him. He had already talked to Jesus, who had said his kingdom was not of this world and whose demeanor, demeanor obviously was not that of a typical revolutionary. He knew that Jesus had done no wrong. There had been no riots for three and a half years that Jesus had been ministering. And now he hears the Jews say, he is claiming to be the Son of God. And Pilate must have thought, well, maybe he is the Son of God. Maybe he is somebody special. Maybe he's some kind of a, a godlet, some kind of a, a little G God. Maybe he's something special. I don't know. But he got, he got scared. So he's not ready to crucify him yet. So he goes back into his praetorium. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters. That's the praetorium again and said to Jesus. He, he took Jesus back in there with him, I'm sure. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And, of course, the question here is, why did he not, not answer here? Because he answered before. My kingdom was not of the world. He had talked to Pilate before. Could be he realized it was hopeless by now. There's no point in talking about this. And he might have realized Pilate is not going to understand. Where are you from? What does that mean? Are you from Galilee or are you from heaven? And Jesus apparently felt like it was no point in talking to Pilate about that because he's not going to understand. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate appeals to his authority. He's the big shot. He's trying to say, Look, I'm trying to let you off. Now, it's not because Pilate thought Jesus had any friendly feelings toward Jesus. is that he didn't want to crucify somebody he thought might be innocent. So he's trying to get Jesus to defend himself so he'll have something to hang, hang his case on that, that he shouldn't con condemn him. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus sort of calls him to task for his appeal to his, his authority. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. In other words, the Jews, Caiaphas, is greater than you. Because Caiaphas was murdering somebody that he knew was innocent. And well, so was Pilate about to. But the difference is, is that Caiaphas represented a, a group of people that were full of utter hatred for Jesus. Pilate was not full of hatred for Jesus. I assume that's why... That would be the greater sin. Of course, you notice now there's a greater sin. That shows that some sins are greater than others. I say that to counteract the Christian myth that all sins are the same. No, they're not. All sins will get you into hell. But once you get there, the greater sins will put you into a deeper part of hell than the lesser sins. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So the Jews now are appealing to Pilate's worst fears, revolution, and Caesar's going to be mad at me, Pilate. Caesar's going to be mad at Pilate and take him out of his office if Jesus, if we start a riot, if the Jews start a riot. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews. Behold your king. He's already said, Behold the man. Now he says, Behold your king. And again, look at him. He's a wrecked, beaten up man. And you think this is your Messiah? You think you've got something to worry about from this guy? Well, the Jews, they did have something to worry because Jesus really was their king. And, he, and they wouldn't admit it. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Thus exhibiting their utter hatred of the Son of God. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Pilate's saying, wait a minute, Pilate now might be angry at him. He's saying, you're a king. He might be jabbing him a little bit. This guy's your king? Look at him. He's a wreck of a human being. He can't even be recognized. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And there, they totally prostrated themselves to the, the beast of the sea, the sea beast in Revelation, Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified, Pilate. So that's just a brief summary of what happened. When I get to John, I will go over that with a little bit more 
detail, but that's just to give you the introduction for what happened here in Matthew. So Matthew chapter 27, verse 26 says, After having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. And, and then all this stuff happened in John that I just talked about. And then John says in verse chapter 19, verse 16, 16, so he delivered him over to be crucified. So now we can go to the crucifixion. Matthew 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into headquarters, the praetorium, and gathered the whole company around him. So remember, the praetorium is a big place, a big room in this palace. I'm assuming it's Herod's palace. That was the governor's official residence while he was in Jerusalem, away from Caesarea, where he normally stood. It was often called the Judgment Hall, or the Praetorium, the Judgment Hall, and Praetorium in Judgment Hall in English. Jews would not enter unless they would defile themselves, as I've mentioned before. So Pilate would go outside to the pavement outside, the judgment seat called Gabbatha in Aramaic, as we learn from John chapter 19, and that when he wanted to speak to the Jews to keep them from being defiled. Now, this company of soldiers is, could it be the band of soldiers who had arrested him, and they were still there, this company of soldiers that took Jesus into the praetorium. They would be about 500 or so, according to John Gill. Now, this arrest of Jesus, or this carrying of Jesus to be mocked into the praetorium there, is predicted in Psalm 22, verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And so these soldiers are getting ready to fulfill a prophecy of Psalm 22, that messianic psalm there. Matthew 27, verse 28, They, the soldiers, stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet military robe. The NIV study Bible says the robe was the outer cloak of a Roman soldier, which, of course, they would have handy. The Holman Christian Study Bible actually uses the adjective military robe when they take a little leap of faith in the translation. The NIV does not have a military robe, just says a robe. Well, I'm going to assume the Holman Christian Study Bible translation is correct. That was a military robe because the NIV Study Bible says that this robe was probably an old coat of one of their officers. That makes sense. It's called scarlet here. Mark and John say it was purple in the parallel passages. How do you reconcile that? Well, scarlet and purple are close in color. So it was probably a deep scarlet, a scarlet purple color, reddish purple. Another way you could reconcile that is to say that Jesus' vest was purple and the robe outside, they gave him a vest that was purple and a robe to put over the vest that was scarlet. I don't think that's it. I just think it's a robe that was basically scarlet purple. And of course, the purpose of this was to mock him as a king. Oh, you're a king, huh? You're nothing but a criminal. We're going to pretend... We're going to make fun of you. So they stripped Jesus of his normal clothes and put him in this military robe. Jesus was not crucified in that robe because later on they took the robe off of him and put his ordinary clothes back on. Matthew chapter 27, verse 29, they twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head. Again, all of this is by the Romans, not by the Jews, by the Romans in the praetorium. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a reed in his right hand. And of course, the purpose of that is to mock him. A crown of thorns, kings don't wear a crown made out of thorns. They placed a reed in his right hand. That reed was supposed to symbolize the iron scepter that the king had, which is a symbol of kingly authority. Then they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Because you normally kneel, kneel down before a king, so they kneeled down before him as if he were a king and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. I think the mockery is obvious. Now, it's an interesting point here. Adam Clark claims that it was not a crown of thorns, that the that if it was not a crown of thorns that was put on his head, and in fact that which was put on his head was not meant to torture him, to hurt him physically, but was meant to mock him, to, to hurt him emotionally. I think most people disagree with that, but I'll mention to you Adam Clark's theory. 
This is what he says, quote, Many Christians have gone astray in magnifying the sufferings of Christ from this circumstance, the crown of thorns, and painters, the worst of all commentators, frequently represent Christ with a crown of long thorns, which one standing by is striking into his head with a stick. These representations engender ideas both false and absurd. Well, I think that's an overstatement. They might be false, but I don't think it's absurd, as we'll see later. He goes, and then Clark in another place goes into the Greek, says it shouldn't be translated thorns, but another plant called bear's foot, which is smooth. And he says he read somewhere that those smooth herbs are found in Jerusalem. And then let me start here from the quote. Clark says, quote, I find nothing in the New Testament said concerning this crown, which Pilate's soldiers put on the head of Jesus, to incline one to think that it was of thorns, and intended, as is usually supposed, to put him to pain. The reed put into his hand and the scarlet robe on his back were only meant as marks of mockery and contempt, although I will point out that putting a robe on somebody that's been flogged with bits of bone and had his skin ripped out, you put a robe on that clotted blood and then take it off again as the Romans did, that was very, very painful. One may, Clark continues, one may also reasonably judge by the soldiers being said to plait this crown that it was not composed of such twigs and leaves as were of a thorny nature. I guess it's hard to make to make a crown out of thorns because they'd stick you as you were making your thorn, and that's a point. I would find that difficult. I do not find that it is mentioned by any of the primitive Christian writers as an instance of the cruelty used toward our Savior before he was led to his crucifixion. Till the time of Tertullian, he was who lived after Jesus' death at the distance of above 160 years. Okay, so maybe it wasn't thorns. But anyway, they, at least they were mocking him. But as I said, I believe, in my humble opinion, they were also physically torturing him with that crown of thorns, as well as with that robe on his back. We go to verse 30 in Matthew 27. Then they spit on him, took the reed, and kept hitting him on the head. So this scepter, this fake scepter, this mocking scepter of the reed, they took and hit him on the head. And that's where we get the painters, get the idea of people hitting the crown of thorns and driving those thorns into to his head. I tend to think that Adam Clark is wrong about this. And they spit on him that people, some people say that's probably a parody. The NIV Study Bible says that's probably a parody of a kiss of homage. Instead of kissing him, to, to lean over to his cheek as if to kiss him as a king, then instead of kissing him, they spit on him. What jerks. Somebody in a commentator I read somewhere that said that this was a stain on the Roman military to mock somebody before they crucify him. You know, in modern days, you don't do that. They give them a priest. They give them a last meal. They give them a Bible to read. They have a confession if he's a Catholic. And all the people out there are watching him. They have to be quiet and respectful. They wait for the governor's call. You don't mock somebody that's being crucified. But the Roman soldiers did. Matthew 27, verse 31. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his clothes on him, and that's where it probably hurt right there when they stripped off his robe, put his clothes, his ordinary clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Why did they do this? Why did they put his old clothes back on? Probably to be able to identify him, as says John Gill, to make sure that the person who was condemned was the person they had crucified, because there was other crucifixions going on out there, as you know. And remember, Jesus is beaten all up. It's hard to identify him when his face is all scourged and and beaten up. It could be they put his old clothes back on so that the four soldiers who were who, who were his executioners might possess the old military robe. Remember, they cast lots for his clothes, and so they might have wanted to keep the clothes with them so that they could get the clothes when they rolled the dice. So there's a couple of good reasons right there why, for identification's sake and for the uh, pecuniary interest, that's why they took the military robe, the scarlet robe, off of Jesus. 
Now, they led him away to crucify him. He was condemned that Friday morning. Condemned criminals were always crucified on the same day of the condemnation, John Gill says. And this crucifixion fulfilled Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus didn't call for a revolution. He didn't ask his disciples to come in there and fight with swords. He went voluntarily to suffer for the sins of the world. Matthew 27, verse 32, as they were going out, the soldiers and Jesus, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. Now that's in North, Libya, basically, northern Africa to the west of Egypt. And I heard a philosophy professor in London give it the old Greek pronunciation, pronunciation, Kyrene. So this would be the Kyrenian man. So I'm going to do that too. In South Carolina, we say Cyrene. But anyway, he was a Kyrenian man named Simon. They forced this man to carry his cross. Now, Kyrene was a city in North Africa in Libya, and it had a large population of Jews. And Simon was probably one of those Jews. Simon of Kyrene was probably one of, the, one of those Jews who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, according to my NIV study Bible. We can see in Acts 6, 9 that there were Jews from Kyrene who had come for the Passover there or who would come to Jerusalem, I should say. Acts 6, 9, Then some from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Kyrenians and Alexandrians, came from Cilicia and Asia, came forward and disputed with Stephen. All right, so this is why Simon was there, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Now, Jesus had carried his cross for a ways on his way to Golgotha to get crucified, but remember, he had been up all Thursday night, had undergone what, one, two, three, four, five interrogations or trials or whatever you want to call them. And now he, then he's been whipped mercilessly and now he's carrying a big heavy wooden cross beam. There's no surprise that he collapsed and couldn't carry his cross anymore. That's why they had to get somebody to help him, a, a bystander. Now, how do we know that Jesus carried the cross part of the way? Because we look at John 19, verses 17, carrying his own cross... He went out to what is called Skull Place, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. Now, so there you have there you have the uh, statement of John that Jesus was carrying his own cross, which was the typical situation when a Roman crucified somebody. When the Romans crucified somebody, they required them to carry their own cross. Another piece of torture and indignation. Now, Adam Clark says Simon may have merely assisted Jesus in carrying the cross. John Gill says that that. Simon of Kyrene carried only one end of it, Jesus going before with the other end on his shoulder. That's just speculation. We don't know. Matthew 27, verse 33. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means skull place. Golgotha now cannot be definitely located. I'm going to give you a story of when I was a little about the location of this Golgotha. They don't know where it is. There's a Protestant, how can I say, a Protestant tourist place, let's call it that, that alleges that this is Golgotha, and even they claim they don't know for sure. What's the origin of the name? Well, it was a hill that looked like a skull, some people say. The Gospels say nothing about a hill, NIV Study Bible points out, but the traditions say that there was a hill that looked like a skull, and, in, and because it looked like a skull, there were so many executions that took place there. The place was infamous for executions. It shows to what shame and disgrace to which Jesus was brought. The Latin word is Calvary, as we know in English. We sing all those hymns about Calvary. It comes from Calvi Capitis, the place of bare skulls. The Greek, Olgatha, is traditionally interpreted as reflecting the Aramaic, which is Gabatha, 
according to Wikipedia. Now, let me tell you the story. I, I was touring Israel with my wife, and we went to the place which was the place of the skull. It was an empty, I think it was limestone hill with a bunch of crevices and cracks and caves in it. Kind of interesting-looking ge- geological formation. And they had some apartments that were built on a hill right opposite Golgotha, and, and the the tourist walkway that we're on was in front of those apartments, and it was L-shaped. Well, the part of the L that was in front of the apartments faced Golgotha, and they said, "This, if you look from that place and look at the skull at the at the hill, you can see the skulls." Now, that apartment, interestingly enough, was owned by the guy who wrote it as well with my soul that famous protestant hymn i found out later much to my chagrin the man went nuts at the end of his life he was the guy that was told that his wife and four daughters were on a ship on the atlantic and the ship went down and everybody drowned excuse me not his wife his wife was still living his daughters and he wrote that hymn it is well with my soul a beautiful hymn well he later went crazy and even worse than well i don't know about worse than that well worse than that i guess well, he, he went and bought that apartment there right across from this alleged Golgotha place. He bought an, bought an apartment there, and his wife was there with him, and they started a group there that became a cult. After he died, the wife started suggesting that the members of the cult have sex with each other. Interesting little story, I thought. They didn't tell me that, of course, on the tour. They never mentioned such unpleasant things. on, on <laughs> uh, Tour guys never mentioned such unpleasant things. So anyway... They were giving that story. Well, I wasn't over there on that part of the L watching the hill. I was watching the Golgotha from the other part of the L from a different angle, and I looked at it, and I said, my gosh, it looks just like a skull. So I got the tour guide over there, and I said, why do you say that it looks like a skull from over there? Look at it from here. It looks exactly like a skull. And that tour guide looked at that, and he says, my gosh, I've never seen that before because it looked exactly like a skull. But anyway, all that's tradition. Who knows? The point is, is that it was a crucifixion ground, and that's where our Lord ended up being crucified. Matthew 27, verse 34. They, the soldiers, gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Gall was a nar- narcotic to kill pain, according to my NIV study Bible. Now, there was a tradition that said that the women of Jerusalem would give this to crucified criminals. This tradition perhaps came from this verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 31, verse 6. Give beer to the one who is dying. And of course, beer is not a good translation. I don't think Holman Christian Study Bible, the KGV has strong drinks. So let's just say alcohol. Give alcohol to the one who is drying. And somehow a tradition sprung up to ease the pain of these criminals. Jesus didn't drink it. He was in awful pain. And, you know, nothing more painful than being crucified. But he wouldn't drink it. Why? Well, here's some options. My NIV Study Bible says Jesus wanted to stay fully conscious until his death as he took on the sins of the world. Another Option, another theory is that since the wine belonged to the Gentiles, it might have been offered to idols, and Jesus wanted to, didn't want to drink wine offered to idols. I find that highly speculative and unlikely. I think he wanted to stay conscious so he could do his job of bearing the sins of the world, not in a drunken state, but in a sober state. Now, he did taste the wine. Some John Gill says he wanted to taste the wine to show that he was not contemptuously dismissing their help. I think, however, that the most probable reason that he tasted it, because he didn't know there was gall in the wine, that narcotic. He didn't know there was gall in the wine at first. He just thought they were giving him wine. He was thirsty. And I can imagine that he was horribly thirsty being crucified. Matthew chapter 27, verse 35. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. 
Now, my NIV study Bible says that if somebody lived too long on the cross, the victim's legs were broken. Why? Because the the victims would put the, their victim's feet were nailed to the upper the vertical piece of wood, and they would push down on that spike in their feet to hold their lungs up so that they wouldn't suffocate. So what the soldiers would do is they would break the legs of somebody who was living too long, so that he would his chest would fall down because he couldn't hold his chest up anymore, and he would suffocate. But that wasn't necessary with Jesus because he was already dead. The water, the blood and the water had already come out of his side when they poked him with a spear. That's in a different parallel passage. They divided his clothes. By the way, Roman citizens were never executed the way that Jesus was executed. Only slaves and the basest of criminals were executed that way. Adam Clark adds a gruesome detail. He says, sometimes birds of prey would eat the flesh even before death had occurred. The soldiers had laid the cross beams on the ground and nailed Jesus to the cross as he was lying down. Then they lift up the cross. That's how they did that. And then the soldiers divided the lots. It was the accepted right of executioners to claim the possessions of the victim, sort of like their pay for doing their dirty work. Jesus' possessions were probably, according to my NIV study Bible, an undergarment, an outer garment, belt, sandals, and possibly a head covering. Not too much. The soldiers were unwittingly fulfilling the words of Psalm 22, verse 18, which I'm sure they never read, which says, They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. That's that messianic psalm in Psalm 22. There were four soldiers that did this. We know by reading the parallel passage in John 19. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, starting at verses 23 and 24, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts apart for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one, one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They couldn't divide it into force because it would be useless. So they said, well, let's just throw lots for that one piece of tunic. In other words, normally they wouldn't have cast lots. They would have just divided the clothes into four parts, but they couldn't, they couldn't divide that seamless tunic. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. And so John specifically points out that the soldiers were fulfilling Psalm 22, 8. Gill does mention that there's an option that they cast lots to see who would get which fourth, and that's possible, who gets which fourth, and I think it's most probable there's who gets that tunic that we can't divide. That's enough for this audio. I think I'll stop it right here at verse 35, and we will continue with the details of the crucifixion in verse 36 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one. 